Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome back to Series X in Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. And if you listen to this program, you already know the argument that some white Americans have always made the doctrine of states' rights, which all too often has meant the right to dominate other people. And much of the Southern worldview was embedded with this doctrine of radicalized, radical anti-statism, which, of course, went on to spread to parts of the North and has been become normalized in what is the modern Republican Party. Now, Jefferson Cowie is the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. He holds the James G. Solomon Chair in History at Vanderbilt University, and he's written many books, including The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics. The Nation calls him one of our most commanding interpreters of recent American experience. But this book, which won the Pulitzer, tells the incredible tale of generations of local fights against the federal government that tend to prop up a particular version of American freedom. That would be the freedom to oppress others. It is a great pleasure to welcome Jefferson Cowie to Sirius XM. Thanks for having me on. And that was possibly the most succinct uh, introduction I've ever heard that included the uh, argument of the book. So, well, very impressive. Uh, it's a, Listen, I, I grew up half Southern, half Northern, and I love taking on the government, but uh, I'm, all, I'm all for questioning the government. But we all know what states' rights has been code for since long before any of us were born. And we all know how little they mean states' rights when it comes to things like cannabis, women, New York getting to make their own gun laws. So this book is coming at the right time. Your, your whole life's work seems to me to have been grounded in social and political history. And, and you've, you've always focused on how class and inequality and labor shape American politics and, and our culture. I'm really curious, what was it that specifically inspired you to write this book now? Was there one incident uh, that happened or has it been just this ongoing miniseries we're watching? <laughs> That's a good question, actually. You know, I, for the record, I conceived of it and began the research before the election of Donald Trump. So uh, it, it is not a sort of presentist oriented project in that way. But I had been sort of looking around and noticing the number of times that the way freedom was invoked was in fundamental conflict, just not with my thinking, but my values. Right. And so I, that was just sort of stuck in the back of my brain for a long time. And then, as you say, I've been studying questions of class and inequality for a long time and, and, and with a fundamental belief that the real struggle is for economic equality. Like how, if we could just, you know, raise the standards for everybody in terms of wages, working conditions, education, housing, you know, the core values that things might take care of themselves. But I kept running up on this, the sort of shoals of race constantly in American politics. So I wanted to, A, 
explore race in its full complexity in America, explore the ideology, uh, ideological expressions of that within this national creed that seems so confusing to me. And then I also kind of wanted to figure out why people hated the government so much. Mm -hmm. And all three of those things kind of went into this this project. Yeah, I kind of feel like the people who talk about hating the government so much tend to hate representative democracy more than actual government. But at the center of your book's narrative is Barber County, Alabama, um, ancestral home of segregationist Governor George Wallace. For our listeners who have not yet read your book, why Barber County and what do we need to learn from this place and its history? Well, Barber County, kind of by an accident, I stumbled across the place. I mean, if there was, you know, if if I'd like to tell you, I did a, uh, you know, complete sampling of every relevant county and decided that this was the scientifically representative place for me to study. Not true. Uh, I drove <laughs> through it and my spider senses went off and I said, I think this is the place that I want to figure out this puzzle of freedom. Because what yeah. I wanted to do was contain this question in some kind of way, either a place, a person, an idea, some way that I w wouldn't allow me to fudge the question. You know, you can right. tell a national story about almost anything. So um, so when I found this place, I was like, this is it. And then later on, I found out that Governor Wallace, whom I had struggled with so much in my previous work, uh, was from there. And then it was fate. Then I was like, this is the place. Um, because Wallace is, in many ways, the guy who rejiggered the modern political system and created the sort of political partisan divide that we have. You're today. right. You're so right. I mean, I, I will admit I didn't know much about Barber County and reading your book. I mean, from the seizure of native lands to the support for secession, uh, hating reconstruction, the Jim Crow laws, um, not liking the New Deal, not liking desegregation, not liking the Civil Rights Act. I mean, it, it, you really regard this as a microcosm of the conservative white South, or, or is it a microcosm of conservative white America? Right. That's that's the question, right? And uh, there's no reason you should know anything about Barber County. It's a fairly obscure place in the southeast corner of Alabama, right across the Chattahoochee River from uh, Georgia. It's a tiny place, but it is a microcosm, and it's certainly a microcosm of the Deep South. Um, and I do believe, as did Wallace, that it's a microcosm of the country, that especially yeah. after the great migrations with both black and white people moved to the north, uh, and Wallace himself sort of uh, in, in his inaugural address looked to, this, to uh, the south as an idea that permeated the entire country. And that's what yes. he believed would give him power in his presidential bids. It's so amazing how much Wallace has been forgotten in the popular culture. I mean, most people my age don't know a thing about him. I, I, I mean, what do you think is George Wallace's true legacy on our politics? And, and, and what is the relevance of Barber County's uh, history to today's right wing movements? Right. Well, so if, if anybody, if people know anything about Wallace, they know two things. One, he's the guy who stood in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama to try right. to prevent the registration of black students. Um, the other is his famous speech uh, where he said segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever uh, in January of 1963. And though and so he becomes kind of and he was he was Martin Luther King's nemesis. Um, because, and you know, his church was right across the street from the state capitol. They could That's right. pretty much stare each other right in the eye. 
Um, so that's kind of the person they know. But my if you, my argument is if you look closely at the way Wallace spoke and the way Wallace acted and his political agenda, he was actually talking about freedom from federal power. Yeah. It's easy to be a snarling racist, right? That, But that's only going to get you so far. Right. But if your enemy becomes the federal government, now you have a coalition, right? Now you got... Not, the racists will get on board, but also all sorts of other people are going to get on board. Everybody's got a gripe against the federal government. We've all got that, right? So, uh, and he recognized that, and he became Alabama's fighting judge because he resisted federal power, uh, that's right. and that's how he ran. That's how he became uh, uh, governor. So, if you look at that famous speech uh, where he says segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, he only mentioned segregation one other time. He mentioned really? freedom twenty-four times. <sighs> And that address is about freedom, and that makes George Wallace, in my book, a freedom fighter of a certain kind. Right. I mean, white supremacist ideas of freedom are so embedded in our politics. Um, but in terms of freedom getting wrapped up in this idea of inherently being against the federal government, th that began before Wallace, right? I mean, isn't that the core of secessionism? Absolutely. And all the way back to uh, the uh, expropriation of lands from the Muscogee Creek people. Um, but but yeah, take secession. It's a great example. When Barber County left the Union, uh, they didn't leave the Union because uh, we want uh, uh, the, 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 the petition the Barber elite signed did not say we want to keep slavery. They said, do you want to be a slave? Then you can stay in the Union. Hmm. Because I, if white people want to be enslaved to the power of the federal government, then you stay in the union. If you want to be a free man, then you leave the union. And hmm. these are like wrap your head around the fact that these are slave owners, slave, yeah, <laughs> fighting the idea that they could be enslaved by federal power, right? And so their freedom, you know, they saw secession as a freedom move because they would be free from federal authority to mess with their capacity to enslave others. It's the, the inherent, freedom to dominate. As you yeah, the inherent uh, hypocritical sin of America. I mean, the slave owners who wanted to be free, the followers of Christ who needed to own people that they could beat and rape and sell at will. That's right. I, you know, I got to say, building on this, what are some of the examples of the uh, paradoxical nature and problems of American freedom as we understand it today. I mean, this resonates between everything with voting rights and, and, and local authority and states' rights. Right, exactly. So um, so if we if we look at the structure of the country, of the of the constitutional structure of how the thing is put together, uh, Madison called it the compound republic. And that is to say that power rests on the local level, the state level, and the federal level. And he thought this would be a sort of ingenious system to keep power dispersed. But what it means in the long run is a long-term fight over where citizenship lives. And for both the indigenous people, freedmen, civil rights workers, their goal was to project citizenship up, citizenship up the chain as far as they could to the federal level. They wanted – so when Martin Luther King, for instance, is protesting, he's not protesting to march across a bridge or whatever. He wants to invoke federal authority yes. into wherever he is in order to get legislation passed, federal courts uh, on the move, whatever they might be. Local whites, as you mentioned, states' rights, they want to keep 
power and authority and citizenship on the local level where that freedom to dominate can flourish. And that's the kind of structure. I'll give you an example, and it's my favorite example from the book. Please, please. Uh, after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that changed America, um, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, King's organization, sent out uh, white and black people to register people to vote. And um, his uh, lieutenant, this guy named Hosea Williams, um, was trying to figure out why some counties had really good numbers and other counties didn't have great numbers of registered voters. And he's like, well, this one, you know, this guy had great leadership. This one had, uh, you know, was organized by SCLC. This one was organized by SNCC. What's going on? Why are some good ones? And he can't figure it out. And finally, the scales fall from his eyes and he says, oh, my God, it's any county that has a federal registrar has high numbers of voters registered. If they ding, didn't ding, have ding. a federal registrar in the county, they don't. So mm -hmm. it didn't matter. I mean, organizing matters, but it, but but what really mattered was whether there was federal authority, the kind of authority that white people have been fighting against, George Wallace had been fighting against, whether that federal authority was on the ground in there to make sure that people had the right to vote. And it's the same with Reconstruction, except Reconstruction, they brought the army. Right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Okay, so let me ask, because this this pertains to the 14th Amendment, and it shows how timely your book is. In the, in the very beginning, you state, federal power has proven itself quite consistently by design and by practice to be inadequate to the basic claims of citizenship of its people. Uh, I kind of agree, but how so? Right. Well, this is back to this sort of contested structure of American citizenship. You know, where it, where is it? And uh, it's my contention after doing this research uh, that I was like, I'm tired of the freedom talk uh, as much as <laughs> I, I enjoy certain dimensions of freedom, of course. Uh, but it, for me, it became what we need is a constitutional amendment that guarantees the right to vote to every citizen over the age of 18. Done, done, done. No convict, blah, blah, blah. No gerrymandering. You have the right to vote and your vote will be counted in an equitable way. Um, and until that right is projected clearly and unambiguously on the federal 
level, we're going to be in this contest forever. Um, one of the first things I do when I teach issues like this in my classes, I say, how do you know you have the right to vote? Where is that guaranteed? And people think it's the Constitution, but it's not. The right to vote is a state-level right. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, um, that's where the fight is. And until we that's take it. it off the state level and we have 50 different fights, uh, we're going to continue to have uh, a deeply flawed democracy. My guest is uh, Jefferson Cowie, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power, which is a hell of a book that you need to read. But let me let me ask you the million-dollar question, and it, it, it might be a dumb question, but what role should the federal government play in protecting non-white citizens from disenfranchisement and, and discriminatory practices that are enacted by these local governments? I mean, practically speaking, what would this look like in terms of policy and action? I think um, it has to be very aggressive. I think it has to be very militant. I mean, the time it worked the best, literally, was during Reconstruction, after the Civil War, after the South was subjugated, after the white South was subjugated, um, and, and there were troops on the ground ensuring a biracial democracy. And it worked. There was a functioning biracial democracy after the Civil War, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, Emancipation, Equal Protection, and the, and voting rights had been passed. The only black person ever to be elected to the United States Congress in the entire history of that region of the state was in the 1870s. Hasn't been one before, and there certainly hasn't, and there hasn't been one since. And it's because people had the right to vote insured, unambiguously. Mm-hmm. When that when the federal government faltered. That's when whites seized the moment. They shot black voters in the street in 1874, shooting 80 voters uh, as they were lined up at the polls and destroyed that moment of of this biracial democracy. So the answer to your question is it has to be very aggressive, I think. I mean, um, it, and, and people will claim this is an infringement on states' rights and, and local freedoms to run elections as as they want, as they see fit under local circumstances. But as you said at the top of the show, that's code for something else. Yeah. I mean, more and more, it it feels like just talking about federal government is almost code for Democratic Party at this point. I mean, all the points you make that the federal government has been uh, an unreliable ally and and historically at times an open enemy of the rights of non-white citizens. But without that federal power, as we can tell looking around right now, even those precarious rights would almost certainly be destroyed. Right. Now, I, I have lots of, I've had a number of uh, black scholars and friends and stuff. I, I They read my book or I give them this argument. They're like, oh, so the federal government's my friend, huh? Tell me tell me more about this myth. And but we, but we work it out. And, and, and so the problem is that the federal government is mostly on the side of white people throughout American history. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, and that's the flashpoints occasionally. in the compound republic, it's the flashpoints in my book, when they side with Native Americans or they side with black people, that's when white people get this politics of grievance going, so the true. sense of their rights being trampled upon. And, you know, it's no surprise that as of late, 
January 6th and the Freedom Caucus and things like this, this sort of neo-secessionist, neo-Confederate idea of freedom is back in America. Yeah, I mean, you just nail it across the board. So let me let me ask you about one of your chapters, which is titled Lynching as an Act of Freedom. Uh, yeah. This section of the book is obviously powerful, and I think it takes your debate to the, the, the furthest point. It's a shocking title, and it's, uh, it can, it's a challenging chapter to read. But for those who haven't yet reached Chapter 13, how could lynching ever be seen by Americans as an act of freedom? That was by far the hardest chapter to write, and it was the most difficult to situate within this trajectory of freedom. Um, and you're right, I'm probably, it's the outer limits of my argument. But here's the argument. Please. Um, if we accept this idea that freedom contains an idea of the freedom to oppress, that the, that the freedom to take land, the freedom to enslave, then... Where do you draw the line? Is the freedom to take the life of another person with absolute impunity, with a guarantee that you will not be prosecuted, that whatever a lynch mob is, is actually a constitution of the people at that time, then lynching has to be part of this long history of freedom, of freedom yeah. to dominate other people. And yeah, it's it's ugly. It's it's a horrible thing to talk about. And just getting to the title of that chapter, lynching as an act of freedom, was 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 a was a, a tough journey for me. Let, let, let me quote you in part. Um, you write in chapter thirteen: for people of European descent, the capacity for violence was their birthright. Uh, the final statement of their freedom, white freedom, grew out of the actions of those who had the right to kill with impunity. To understand lynching is to root it in slavery, which fostered the sensibility of freedom for all white people in generations after the Revolutionary War. It 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 just seems like, it, yes, it's grotesque bigotry, but it also, you cannot separate lynching from this anti-statism that has always existed right. among white conservatives. And... You can't separate it from the fundamental American creed, which is freedom, right? So until we sort of disaggregate this idea of freedom and get rid of the the, the really dark, evil parts of it, we're going to have problems in this country. And yeah, the, the whole idea that this kind of flows out, uh, lynching flows out of the deepest traditions in America is 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 a difficult thing to reconcile with. Now, the other side of it is, there were all sorts of attempts at lynching law, federal laws to stop right. lynching. They were very difficult to get passed. Even Franklin Roosevelt, you know, the New Deal president, uh, refused Roosevelt. to touch it because Incredible. it would destroy his political coalition. If he if he touched lynching, he wasn't going to get Social Security. He wasn't going to get fair labor standards. He wasn't going to get. That's it. Better financial regulation, anything else. So that's it. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, if if Bill Clinton didn't sign Defense of Marriage Act, Bob Dole might have become president. There's always a reason, right? To delay progress. You know, you end that's this right. chapter. I want to just share this quote with our audience. You, you, legal impunity might be a form of freedom, but even the law could not provide freedom from the conscience, which I guess isn't a problem if you don't have a conscience or you've been groomed your whole life to think this is your birthright. I mean, there's a moral fervor behind these people, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And and, and that's where I, I sort of began to suggest that uh, 
there's a a kind of sensibility that this kind of collection of the people on the local level is the constitution is the people is where rights are located and then anything outside of that is tyranny is an attack on that and 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 that's sort of the major theme of the book all the way back to when uh uh, the, the 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 this county is actually born uh when uh it's part of the creek nation mm-hmm. and white intruders come into the creek nation to take over the land because there's nothing more than nothing says freedom in jacksonian america more than owning land yeah and of all people andrew jackson sends troops in to to root them out and burn down white settlements and kick them out. And so this place is kind of born in this in literally in the fires of this of this tension with federal power and 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 white freedom and uh it, it continues to to go from there, right? And we have we have to remember Donald Trump moved out of the Oval Office, the bust of Martin Luther King and moved in the bust of Andrew Jackson which he probably knew nothing about, but he was surrounded by guys like Steve Bannon who revered that. Sort I was going to say that was Steve Bannon's yeah. idea. I, I don't always think thought he knew so. enough to know Andrew exactly. Jackson from Harry. I don't think Donald Trump yet. knows that Andrew Jackson's <laughs> on the 20. Um, I, before I let you go, I got to ask this question in researching this book, what did you learn that, that shocked or surprised you the most? Well, I, you know, I already mentioned the, uh, the, the moment of the voting tallies, uh, on the County level after that. And that, that was a big one, but I'll tell you, you know, going back when you mentioned that lynching chapter, which I try not to think about too often, I get it. But there's a, that chap, that chapter opens with a young, uh, a, a boy who's, um, buying kerosene at a local store and he accidentally nearly brushes the flesh of a white woman. That's right. And at that moment, he panics, drops the kerosene, the jug shatters, and he runs out of the store. And that's like a little thing. But what's interesting to me about that is in this eight-year-old's nervous system was the idea that if he touched a white woman, he could die. And that, I mean, so young, so deeply embedded in the physical being. Uh, uh, that stuck with me. Um, and it seems minor, but on the other hand, it's so deep into the psyche and the physicality of that young man. It's incredible. Jefferson Cowie is the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. I love your book. It's an important book. I hope it's turned into a very long miniseries. What is the best way, sir, for our uh, listeners to keep up with you and all your doings? I'm actually not on social media, so you'll have to hit my website. <laughs> um, but so I, I hate to be uncool, Jefferson, but Jefferson. No, no, that's actually as cool as it gets. It doesn't get hipper than yeah, that. Yeah, right. JeffersonCowie.info. I'm not even .com. <laughs> <laughs> well, right on. Thank you again for writing this book. And, and thank you for joining us here on SiriusXM. It's really a pleasure. Thanks I've for really been on. looking forward to this. Thank you. It's a, it's a book that proves current events are not current. So thank you. We'll be right that's back. That's right. Thanks this. a lot for having me on. Oh. You got it.
everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. I'm John Fiegel saying I am so pleased and honored to welcome our next guest to the show. Congresswoman Diana DeGette is a fourth generation Coloradan who's dedicated her life and public service for the people of Colorado's first congressional district. She's a leading voice in our nation's health care debate, a senior member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the top Democrat on the committee's Energy, Climate and Grid Security Subcommittee. Congresswoman DeGette is responsible for helping shape our nation's energy policies. She's led many efforts to hold the oil and gas producers accountable. Accountable, reduce our overall emissions and expedite our transition to cleaner forms of renewable energy. In fact, one of the first bills Joe Biden signed into law after he took office was legislation Congresswoman DeGette authored to drastically reduce methane emissions from drilling sites, a move climate scientists praised as critical to combating the climate crisis. What a great pleasure to welcome Representative Diana DeGette to SiriusXM. Hello. Hi, great to be with you. It's so nice to have you with us. Thank you so much. Um, I, I want to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, off the top, I want to talk about health care. But right now we're in the midst of this incredible drama and incredible hype and more than a little disinformation about our border and the work that's gone into it. Um, in 2019, you convened the first House oversight hearing on the Trump administration's despicable policy of stealing children from their parents. Some call it family separation. Um, and you have continued to fight for the better treatment of immigrants and their families. Just this month, you called on your colleagues across the aisle to support comprehensive immigration reform now, which we all thought they were about to do until someone told them last week, that's no longer the plan. What has it been like, Congresswoman, in your workplace? And what will it take for such reform to become reality? Well, it is really frustrating because, as I've said for years, if everybody would just take a deep breath and take the rhetoric down, we could come up with comprehensive immigration reform. We have about 12 million people who are in this country who are undocumented, and about 3 million of them are the dreamers, the kids who were brought here as infants. I like to call the other 9 million of them the dreamers' parents. So these people have been here, many of them, for decades, and they've been working and they've been paying taxes, and we really rely on them. We need them. And, and so, so one would think we would be able to come up with a solution that would help re get regular order to that system to help the dreamers get on a path to citizenship. I, I would advocate giving their parents some kind of work documentation since they've been here, some of them 30 years. That's but right. then we need, we need to tackle the issue of what do we do about more people who want to come into this country. And one thing we need to do is modernize how we give visas out, temporary work visas or allowing people on high-tech visas to come in, education visas, all of that is just drifting along because the Republicans won't do anything. And then, and then the last issue that we've now been dealing with for a while is all of these people coming in from uh, countries in Central and Central America mainly 
uh, where the, where they have very real economic problems, but yes. even worse, they have drug cartels, they have gangs and violence, and so so people are coming here, and and what I mean, we do need to to secure our border. We need to have a strong border, but what we need to do with these folks who are trying to come in, and this is part of what was included in this bill that the Senate has been considering is we need to increase funding, not just for border patrol agents, but also for the whole judicial system. So when when people are claiming amnesty, you know, when when, yeah. when they're saying, I'm I am escaping oppression in my country, we can um, we can turn that around. We can send them through a court system to determine whether they should be able to get that status and stay here. And that's the part right now that's been really broken because in in Denver, for example, we have thousands of people who are coming mostly from Venezuela and and we don't have a way to process them in a speedy way. So I would think that would be something Democrats and Republicans could get behind. I'd like to think they could. And thank you for mentioning those who are fleeing the violence of the drug cartels. A lot of those folks are fleeing the violence of our own drug war, which our Republican friends don't bring up all that often. And I've also noticed, Congresswoman, they don't bring up the fact that we have at our border and have always had a gigantic help wanted sign. The reason we have undocumented border crossings are because a lot of people like to give out a lot of jobs. And I've never heard from the Republican Party any campaign to sanction the employers who are the supply and demand reason for the border crossings. I, I mean, if they were serious, Congresswoman, couldn't they end all border crossings in a month by just locking up the folks, giving out all the jobs? That would solve this crisis they claim is so urgent, right? Well, they don't they don't want to lock up those employers because Correct. The employers need those workers. So there you Correct. go. That's so exactly it's a racket. The point I made. It's yeah, a ra- exactly. The Republicans will never allow border crossings to stop. It's all just a sham to rile up their base. But wouldn't it be wonderful if they would give those folks work permits so that they actually would be under a regular status and we could see where they are and what they're doing? You mean what Ronald Reagan wanted to do? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly what Reagan the did. The Reagan plan. <laughs> You just know, it, just Ronald, Reagan, you're, Ronald Reagan, your kindly old uncle. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, thank you very much. It's so frustrating. I have to imagine, Representative, that some of your Republican colleagues across the aisle when they're are not around cameras can be candid with you about how frustrating their jobs and their position must be trapped between this particular voting base and a reality TV racist landlord clown. Every I mean, it, it, it's gotten to where it's it's kind of a joke among the Democrats. We'll go to the floor and vote, and then we'll be in the elevator coming back to our offices, and the doors will close, and our regular Republican colleagues, I don't even call them moderates because they're not moderates, but they're just regular country yeah, club Republicans. Yeah. They, they, they turn to us and they say, can you believe this? And they're, and 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 we say to them, you know what? You guys have the gavels. You're the ones that can fix this. You're the ones that could stand up to it. And that's that's what's frustrating. And, and that's they won't do it. So much cowardice. It must make you and your colleagues insane. Well, it makes us insane. It makes us even more committed to renting the house back. I remind right people I, I'm, I remind people when we had the majority and we passed all of that groundbreaking legislation, um, the Build Back Better Act. 
the the all of the uh, uh, green energy incentives, everything like that, we had a four vote majority. And Nancy exactly. Pelosi, who I believe is the greatest speaker of all time, she pulled us all together. We didn't have these kind of shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always given Leader Pelosi credit in 2017 after the awful year of the Bernie fan, Hillary fan civil war that so divided folks in the center and on the left, how the message discipline in preserving health care and saving the Affordable Care Act unified Democrats in a way I've never seen in my life. And among your colleagues, you're seen as a strong leader in health care. You're an expert in cutting edge scientific research and you champion the 21st Century Cures Act, which has really modernized our medical research system and played a key role in drafting the ACA. Let me ask you, Representative, what do you see as the most critical health care issue currently facing our nation? And, and what should we do about it? Well, I, I mean, the other thing, I'm the co-chair of the Pro-Choice Caucus in Congress with Barbara Lee Indeed. from California. And I, I think at this point, ever since the Supreme Court allowed states to ban abortion, the most critical issue that people in those states are facing is the lack of reproductive health care. And suddenly the American public has realized just how important that is for everybody. And the polling has just flipped on its head. So that that's one thing I've been working very, yeah. very hard on is is restoring people's rights to have the freedom to make their own health care decision, including abortions. That's really yeah. important. And then the other issue with health care is uh, even though we have the Affordable Care Act, even though we've expanded Healthcare, and we saw with the um, with the enroll recent enrollments in the exchanges, it's mm-hmm. at a new high. But still, healthcare is uh, that like the deductibles and the copays are mm-hmm. skyrocketing, and so that that I think is the next thing that Congress really needs to take it take a close look at, and try to try to fix. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, And I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight. Because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. I'm John Fugel saying this is progress after dark. You have said, um, and I applaud you for it, that Roe v. Wade should be considered the floor for women's reproductive rights, not the ceiling. Um, as co-chair of the Congressional Pro-Choice Caucus, you have been leading the fight to restore these protections and defend and, and expand access to care. What specifically would uh, are you working on right now? that you would like your constituents and our listeners to know uh, as the battlefield seems to be so fraught with confusion and disarray? Well, um, we're actually uh, uh, in in the U.S. House. The Democrats are pretty united. 
all but one support uh, reproductive rights. And, and we have a bill, it's called the Women's Health Protection Act. Um, it's sponsored by Congresswoman Judy Chu from California. And we have, I think, 212, 213 co-sponsors of this bill. So in, in the House, you need 218 to pass a bill. And so what we did um, in the House, if you're in the minority, you cannot bring bills to the floor. But there is a procedural, it's kind of an arcane procedural uh, maneuver that you can do. It's called a discharge petition. So mm -hmm. you file a petition with the clerk of the House. And if 218 people sign this petition, then the bill comes directly to the floor. So I filed a discharge petition to bring the Women's Health Protection Act to the floor. And that would restore the rights that Roe versus Wade gave us. And so we have 213 signatures. It's amazing. And it, it would take 218. Well, I don't know. You know, the Republicans have so many vacancies. George Santos and another mm -hmm. guy, Bill Johnson, left to run a university. Uh, the, the other day, um, unfortunately, we were just doing some procedural votes, but we had 203 Democrats and 198 Republicans present. So <laughs> there could come a day. There Seriously, there could come a day where we actually had enough people, um, enough Democrats here to to bring it to the floor and pass it. And then we have to worry about the Senate. And my plan over there is to go over to Chuck Schumer and tell him that this is the number one issue, particularly for younger voters, but also for everybody, and that they need to figure out a way to break the 60 vote rule and to bring it to the floor. Could this be, and forgive my ignorance, but could this be the sort of scenario where reconciliation would be used to pass with only 51 votes, as was done with the ACA? Um, I think it would be difficult because it's a policy bill, not a budget bill. So that's the rules. But, but however, we continue to search for ways to do it. You mentioned my big 21st century cures. Bill, yes. Which, which yes. Um, it modernized. What it did is it modernized and it restructured the way we do biomedical research um, uh, at the NIH and then drug and device approval at the Food and Drug Administration. Yeah. And that bill was a very large bill. But of course, it by the time we got it through the House and it was in the Senate, it was in the waning days of that Congress, right after Donald Trump had been elected. And right. we figured out we figured out a, a legislative way in the Senate that we could get it through. It was the, the last bill that that President Obama signed as president. So that's right. We're you know, that's one thing about being in Congress for a while. You learn the rules and you can figure out how to do things. I think that's actually one of this president's greatest strengths. And I, I got to praise you again for the Cures Act, because, I mean, from cancer research to, to precision medicine, it's really modernized the medical research system. And I think it's fair to say it's one of the most important pieces of legislation Congress has passed in the last two decades. Um, my well, that's you very your, nice your of you to say it. That's oh, nice right of on. you to say. And and we also we also um, when we when we approved the covid vaccines, during the pandemic, we used the procedures that we had put in place in that bill to be able to expedite the approval. The other thing I'll say about that bill, it was a bipartisan bill. And I I, mean, I remain committed to trying to work to find common solutions in a bipartisan way. 
And so, you know, the abortion issue, it's hard to find bipartisan ground. But again, there are many Republicans who will tell me privately that they now realize that this is about health care. They'd like to figure out a way to to get there, but they really are hampered by their far religious right. I, I'd love to read them what's actually in the New Testament and what isn't any day so they'd know. Um, but yeah. that brings it back to my, ta- how- my pastor and I talk about that a lot. <laughs> I'm the child of two ex-clergy. I'm writing a book about it right now. I mean, I, I can oh, you imagine the transformative change we would have if the Bible thumpers actually read the Jesus parts of the Bible? My God. Yeah. Um, but that's got to be frustrating for you as well, because I see so many of your Republican colleagues who are so held hostage by fear that they fear that if they work with a Democrat to improve the lives of their own constituents, they'll be accused of being a traitor. They'll be called a rhino, a cuck, whatever the slur of the week is. And it seems that so much in the Republican caucus is paralyzed. If they do their jobs, they lose their jobs. Well, I, I I think that there's more bipartisanship than people realize. It's not on the hot button issues like immigration sure. or, or abortion, but on other issues, there is bipartisanship. It's difficult for us to get the press to cover it because it's not, you know, it's, it's not true. a big fight. And I, I have a bill which we believe will be coming up soon in committee for a vote, probably to the floor. And this is a bill that gives incentives in congressional budgeting for helping pay for disease prevention. Because right now, the way the budget process works is like, like let's say you want to do, this is my favorite example. Let's say you want to do a bill to pay for smoking cessation programs. Then the congressional budget office will say, well, how much is that going to cost? Like for the hat or the Nicorette, but they don't look at long-term how many lives you're going to save because you, exactly. you don't they don't get cancer or emphysema. So I have a bill with Congressman Mike Burgess from Texas. Mike Burgess is not a moderate. <laughs> He's a very conservative Republican. <laughs> and we're doing this bill together and it looks like we actually might pass it. That's amazing. That's so inspiring. And I, I I agree. People of different backgrounds and beliefs getting along is no good for ratings. People, I mean, the media is the unsung right. villain in so much of this. Um, I, I do want to ask you one more question. Yeah. You recently, about a couple of weeks ago, introduced a discharge petition to force a vote on the Keep mm-hmm. Americans Safe Act and, and reinstate our ban on high capacity magazines, which I think is a brilliant idea. I really support the idea of forcing homicidal maniacs who are doing mass killings to be inconvenienced. They should have to reload mid massacre as often as possible. It's it just moral insane. And you recently said online, despite the horrendous number of mass shootings in 2023, the Republican Party didn't try to advance even a single gun safety bill. I know it's important to get along with them. I know it's important to try to form coalitions. But on this issue, what is your response to this systemic inaction? And and at this point, what would effective gun safety and gun control measures even look like? Well, you, you know, bipartisanship, it, it, it stops where you're talking about the health and safety of your constituents. You can only be, you know, if, if they're not going to, if they're going to be in the pocket of the gun lobby, then that's on them. I do think yeah. that um, Americans' values are really changing on gun safety. We've had so many mass shootings. I mean, Columbine, which used to be in my congressional district, that was kind of the first one 
But the Aurora Theater is five miles from my house. My daughter had friends in the next theater. And the Boulder shooting, what you know, is, I mean, there were there have been so many shootings just in my home state. And I've been working on gun safety issues for decades. And, and, and you know, these guns, I, I believe in the Second Amendment, but you don't mm. need a high-capacity magazine and, a, and a, um, <laughs> a, 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 an assault rifle to go hunting. Right. You're not going <laughs> to no. shoot a deer with that. You couldn't eat the meat. So, yeah. So, thank you. so, so, um, so the bill I've been working on, we have a coalition through the gun safety task force led by the wonderful Mike Thompson from California. And, and we have a big bill that deals with all these issues. And then we have individual bills. So the bill that I'm the lead sponsor of is the one that bans the high capacity magazines over 15 rounds. And right you're right is it like in the Aurora Theater, this is the example I use. Uh, in the Aurora Theater, there were a whole bunch of military and ex-military people watching that movie that day. The shooter came in and, you know, it, the, the far right, they always say, oh, well, you know, people can just take them down. And even if the people in the theater had had guns, by that time that shooter started shooting scores of people within one or two minutes with an assault rifle and high capacity magazines, there's no way they had a chance. And so if you, if you limit, I mean, I think they should, uh, the, the, the assault rifles should be banned too, but even yeah. if you limited the magazines, then when they stopped to reload, all of those military personnel could have tackled the, the shooter and saved lives. Amen. I mean, I, uh... It seems to me this would be the sort of very common sense gun reform that some conservative brothers and sisters who've read the New Testament could get behind. There really isn't a civilian use for this. Are you hopeful that we may see movement on it? Well, again, this is this is like the abortion issue. The public is with us. And so I think time it's a matter of time and pushing the envelope hard. I give people the example when I was in the Colorado legislature, which was the 1990s, I was the leader on gun safety then. And the House and the Senate were Republican. And they, of course, refused to even bring up my bills. I had I had the women for guns in the in the Capitol threatening me. I, you know, it was terrible. And now fast forward to today, based in part on gun safety legislation. And, mm -hmm. and campaigns, the Democrats have taken the state house and the state Senate, Senate, and they've passed some of the most forward-looking gun safety legislation in the country. So I guess my message to your listeners is, if you don't like these policies these of these Republicans, then you need to activate yourself and your friends. You need right to go on. work in campaigns and you need to go vote and then we can change it. Congresswoman Diana DeGette, I can't end this interview on a better, more positive note. Thank you for your service and thank you for representing uh, your district in the House. It's really a pleasure to have you, and uh, I hope it's a very, very good year for you and the other Democrats in the House. Thank you very much. Great talking to you.